Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Sebastian Younger. How are you doing, Sebastian? I'm good. Glad to have you here. I've been looking forward to this ever since I started reading uh, Tribe, which was the first work of yours that I read. But then I just dove in because I couldn't stop myself. And so quick, uh, your bio. Uh, Sebastian Younger is the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Perfect Storm, Fire, A Death in Belmont, War, Tribe, and Freedom. As an award-winning journalist, a contributing editor of Vanity Fair, and a special correspondent to ABC News, he has covered major international news stories around the world and has received both a National Magazine Award and a Peabody Award. He's the documentary filmmaker whose debut film, Restrepro, a feature-length documentary, co-directed by Tim Hetherington, was nominated for an Academy Award and won the Grand Jury Prize at Sendent. That's like perfect storm. You could have stopped right there. And that's, it seems minor compared to everything else. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist and my interest in the world and all its forms is, is sort of endless. And so, uh, you know, I never got into this business to like be a best-selling author, to have a huge hit or to any of that. I mean, I, I, it's wonderful, but that's not why I did it. I, I became a journalist in order to find out about the world. So, of course, that didn't stop when my first book did well. You know, if anything, I, I really wanted to get into war reporting. And so, if anything, the perfect storm actually kept me homebound in the United States several years longer than I, than I wanted because I had to do all this endless publicity. Now, you said you just wanted to be a reporter. And I mean, I just, the last thing of yours that I watched was The Last Patrol, in which you very openly talk. I mean, you and... Oh, his name escapes me. Um, Brendan. Brendan? Well, there's the photographer who... Tim. Tim. Who Tim talked about you as, as lost and the, mo- the, like the oldest and most lost. And which I presume that was your choice to put that quote in. Yeah. yeah. And then you also talk about how your relationship with your father led you not just to be a war reporter, but like to push yourself to physical extremes. And... And it's very, I mean, you're raw in, in these works. I mean, you come out there, both yourself and your relationship with the, the guys that you served with. Is that the right term? You were there while they were serving. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't in the military. I was a journalist. And I, I spent a year off and on in a small outpost called Restrepo and shot a lot of video with Tim. And we, that's how we made our film. And I wrote a book called War about that same deployment, that same platoon. A platoon is 30 or 40 men. And so it, it, the dynamics at that remote outpost in combat, sometimes every day, was something quite close to our evolutionary past. It's a small survival group. Everyone's dependent on each other. And the, the intimacy and the bond that was created, you know, was powerful and I think ancient. And so that, that really fascinated me. But, you know, in turn, the last patrol, you know, we walked from me and a, a and a combat photographer named Guillermo, who was holding Tim's hand when Tim died in Libya uh, from a wound, a shrapnel wound. Uh, and then Brendan, who was a guy in the platoon, another guy named Dave, who was also out there at Restrepo. We walked from Washington, D- along the railroad lines from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, along the rail lines, which are these swaths of no man's land that crisscross America. We were sleeping under bridges and, you know, cooking over fires and sleeping in abandoned buildings. And we were, sort of, we, we thought of ourselves as high speed vagrants. And, uh, so I made a film about that and yeah, there, we, we are, it is raw. And I, there are definitely scenes that make all of us, including myself look vulnerable, but you know, if we're all vulnerable. And if you conceal that from your readers or your viewers or your friends or your spouse, you're just lying. 
You know what I mean? It's a fiction. And so I, I really love putting those parts in where I look vulnerable because I'm, it's very clear to me how vulnerable I, we all are. Yeah, it, it reminds me, I always think of, if you have a pebble in your shoe and you act like it's not there, everyone thinks you're weird because you walk and funny. Yeah. But if you share people, I got a pebble in my shoe, then they're like, okay, maybe we can help you with that. Yeah, exactly. And I wish I could identify some of the pebbles in my shoe and, and <laughs> let people know about them because sometimes you don't, you hide it from yourself. Absolutely. And I'd hidden them from myself my whole life. And I'm really good at ignoring pain. And I mean, physical pain, mental pain, like I'm, I, the more I hurt, the more I turn myself into a robot. And that works great for a very long time. And then eventually you get to a point where you really can't do it anymore. And that's when you're liberated. So I'm, we're jumping in because I can't, I couldn't help but mention uh, the the Last Patrol, and maybe it's worth it to go back a bit of history because I also want to share what brought me to you because I work in sustainability, and it's not obvious that someone writing about freedom or Korngal or you know uh, that that work would connect. So I hope listeners have gotten that if I get it right, you started writing. Well, could, could you give a quick? Um, if you read his stuff, you'll get it all. And I recommend everyone should read the stuff. Put, put, you know, I won't mind if people stop listening right now and, and read all the stuff and then come back. So basically, you're asking how I got into writing? Is that the way I understand or what you're asking? Writing, then war writing, then... Yeah. And then Tribe and Freedom seem like um, a different... Not a break, but like um, synthesizing things in any way. Yeah, I mean, most of my books were documenting a, a, you know, a story that people didn't know about you know, as thoroughly and captivatingly as possible. And with Tribe, you know, it's a short book. You can read it in two hours, likewise with Freedom. And it's a concept book. It's a way of thinking about things. It's a way of thinking about community and wh what the costs are to all of us when we lose it. And the idea came to me because the soldiers I was with, again, it was a platoon at a remote outpost, and we were in a lot of combat, and they all struggled a lot when they came home, as did I, and psychologically. And one of the things they struggled with, with was that they missed... They felt out of place back home, but they missed being out at Restrepo, being in the platoon in combat. They missed it. And it was freaking miserable out there, right? On physical terms, it was absolutely miserable. And what occurred to me is that for most of human history, humans lived in groups of 30 or 40 people. And there was an emotional security that came from being a group that size that once you're exposed to it, it makes it very hard to come home to this sort of like, wide open, fractured, automated society. And that a lot of what is being termed PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, actually may be a readjustment problem in going from a small survival group to a modern mechanized society. That's actually a transition into a sort of socially unhealthy situation that soldiers suffer from as much as they do from trauma. So these last two works seem as much speaking about America, and also our modern times, you came to it through the military experience of the veterans coming home and the, the isolation, the lack of support, the lack of understanding. But it's not, I mean, I suppose you could have picked any number of groups. I mean, teenage girls who commit suicide or these rates are going up because of social media. And I feel like, or, I mean, here in New York City, Yesterday, I was talking to someone, and this, uh, a car went by with a souped-up muffler that, like, super loud. Yeah. And I feel like this is someone crying out for attention that <laughs> in another time would have gone through an initiation right to become an adult. I'm not sure. And I don't want, I'm no psychologist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's possible to be a, a an adult in our society and, and not be mature. And that's inconceivable in a small-scale organic society that depends on everyone's contribution. And the people that aren't willing to, to contribute are marginalized or, or punished. You know, I should say that the book Tribe is not about veterans. It's just that's how I came to the idea that at the root of our illness as a society, and it is an illness. I mean, we're, we were the most affluent, safest society in the world, probably in history. And we have some of the highest rates of suicide and depression, anxiety, postpartum depression, drug addiction uh, ever, right? Like, what is going on? And my answer to that question is alienation. I mean, that's what's... Uh, and people that are vulnerable, like soldiers transitioning from combat, uh, Peace Corps workers coming back, like they're vulnerable because transitions are always, always make people vulnerable. And you can see this outsized reaction in their reentry into this society. But, I, you know, I start with a look at the Pennsylvania frontier on my mother's side. My ancestors settled in Pennsylvania in the 1780s. In fact, I have ancestors who were killed by Indians on in an Indian raid on their homestead. Uh, two teenage boys, and the mother escaped into the cornfield with the infant, and I'm descended from that infant because she managed to elude this war party, right? So I looked at the Pennsylvania frontier, and what was very disturbing to the sort of colonial thinkers, the, to the um, the people of that era in colonial society, American society, is that white people kept absconding to the Indians, right? I mean, people along the frontier, particularly young men, but young women as well, Either they were kidnapped in these raids, or they would just get up and leave and join Native society. And they never wanted to come home, and the opposite was never true. And even Benjamin Franklin sort of lamented this weird fact, like, look, we're an upright, a prosperous Christian society, and the Indians are never coming to live with us. They don't want to have anything to do with us. And our young people keep crossing over and living with them and don't want to come back. What is it about tribal society that's so appealing? You know, so I start with that extraordinary fact, and it's a well-known thing. It happened throughout the conquest of North America with many, many different tribal peoples uh, in many different eras. And, I, you know, I think probably, um, probably one of the things that was going on was that people really love community. It feels good. Your oxytocin levels go up, right? Your dopamine goes up, and all this good stuff happens in your brain. And so even people that in our society that experience a catastrophe like a hurricane or a tornado or the blitz in London, for example, the way they experience those tragedies is actually in a very positive way because they're forced to rely on other people and grow very close to other people in order to survive. And that feeling of closeness is intoxicating. And so often people will look back on these terrible events in their lives with a real nostalgia. Because that's when we were all close. You know, we were huddled around the candle in the kitchen, sharing the last of our food with the neighbors. And they'd remember that, not with horror, but with fondness and nostalgia. That is an expression of our loss of community, our loss of personal connection in our society. Even, I mean, the blitz where people were dying a lot. I mean, even when you could die at any second without any warning. Yeah, I mean, you know, 30,000 civilians were killed in six months during the blitz in London in World War II. The German Air Force was bombing English cities, you know, every night for six months straight. Um, terrible. A whole building's collapsing, right? I mean, awful, awful, awful things. And the British government was prepared for mass psychiatric casualties among the civilian population, right? These aren't soldiers. These are, these are civilians, right? Men, women, children, old people, everybody. 
And what they found was that admissions to psych wards went down during the blitz uh, because the sense of solidarity, the sense of I'm needed, like I'm going to help drive an ambulance or I'm going to whatever, like that buffers people against feelings of psychological stress, psychological despair. And the, the problem started, psychological problems started when the bombing stopped. And then it happened the same, it flipped when the Allies were bombing the Germans. Like the same, they also rallied. Yeah, the... Um, if I remember right. That's right. I mean, the cities that were bombed most intensely actually were not the ones that wanted to capitulate. They were the ones that had the highest solidarity and the highest uh, resolve in terms of continuing to fight the Allied forces. So there was something about that co- awful collective punishment that actually got people to bond together, to collect, act collectively, and to fight. You're seeing that in Ukraine right now. Um, there is some data about how de- the proximity of death gets people to be aware of and to reinforce cultural norms, cultural bonds, social bonds, to face the threat. And I'm sure there's something of that going on in these situations as well. Do you get asked a lot about, say, uh, futurists in Silicon Valley who say it's the best time ever and it's only getting better. Steven Pinker's Better Angels of Our Nature. Do you get asked about that? Because they bring out all these statistics about longevity is higher than ever. Yeah. Um, d- violence is lower than ever. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's by far. I mean, absolutely. Uh, I mean, but for the occasional horror. But on on average, all the virtually all the metrics that we measure human well-being are vastly better than in the Middle Ages, for example, uh, except for mental health. I mean, that's the one, you know, the, the, the thing we've traded for uh, longevity, much lower infant and maternal mortality, uh, much lower levels of violent death and conflict. Uh, what we've traded for that is, you know, a, a very high rates of depression and suicide. Not an obvious trade. Not an, I mean, it was never a conscious choice. No, it's the result. I mean, what modern Western society has figured out how to protect itself, you know, fairly well. Uh, no one that I know is worried about, you know, where's tomorrow's food coming from and where can I find shelter and will I be attacked by the enemy tomorrow? Like that, those aren't, those survival concerns are not present in most people's daily existence. And they were for 200,000 years for humans. And, you know, just as an example, I mean, there are awful wars that happen in, in our society, of course. But the um, there's also international laws that can that can protect nations. There are international treaties. There are there are norms that are that are that can protect human life. And even a couple of hundred years ago, there really were not. Right. And so you can look. I looked at this one extraordinary example, the Yamnaya, which were a nomadic uh, horse culture in on the eastern steppe in what's now Russia, uh, northern Iran. And um, they were a very, very warlike society. And they invaded, they cut a swat, they, they rode, they went into battle on horse-drawn chariots, back when the horse was new to human society, with battle axes, right? I mean, they were sort of the first, you could think of them as the first motorcycle gang, right? And they, they cut a swath through Europe and invaded Iberia, the Iberian Peninsula, what's now Spain and France. And over the course of a 100 years, they wiped out 100% of the men in Iberia. 
100%. There is no DNA. There's no Neolithic DNA from the male side of the, of the Iberian population. Uh, they were completely wiped out by the Yamnaya. And of course, they mated with the women, of course, right? So that's not happening anymore, right? And that was a norm in our earlier history. If it's okay with you, I'm going to take a step back and say what brought me to you, how I came across Tribe in the first place. Yeah. And there may be, I think there's a lot of parallels. So uh, I work on sustainability and I walk people through a process to share their environmental values and act on them. And people like it, but there's often this feeling, the way I describe it is people feel a thousand years ago, we were living as serfs, our, you know, our cultural ancestors, whether you're European or not, our culture derives from there. And so someone's skin color, genetic ancestors may be different, but our cultural ancestors were living as serfs, working from dawn until dusk in the mud. And it, but go back, you know, it's at least it's better than that today. And if we go back farther to Stone Age, the reason we put on fat so quickly is that we are, they never knew where the next meal was going to come yeah. from. So we had to evolve to get, you know, save every last calorie we could. And so they look at today and they say, well, we may have pollution today. There may be some overpopulation, but we do not want to return to that. If anything, you know, maybe we want to switch to some other form of power supply, but we can't stop because if we do, we, we risk going back to mothers dying in childbirth and 30 being old age again. So I felt that as well. Now, if you want to pollute less, but you're afraid that if you do, society's going to collapse, then you're going to keep polluting. You're going to keep doing the things that you think stave off collapse. Then there were a couple chinks in the armor there. One was when I read this book, um, Affluence Without Abundance, about the San Bushmen in Southern Africa, the Kalahari Desert. Yeah. And I learned that they live today. They see the pastoralists around them. They see modern culture and they choose not to join. Not, now, and I learned about the Indians would resist when the European colonists came. And I was thought, why do people still live like the Stone Age? And I grew up thinking, no one told me this in, this, in these words, but I basically learned because they were so stupid and we had to civilize them. And only when we civilized them did they really get it. But then I learned about Hadza, and like, it turns out every place resisted. I don't know of places that didn't resist. I mean, not that I've looked it up. I'm not, I'm not an anthropologist. Then, then I read the, the Dawn of Everything. I'm not sure if you've read this yet, but uh, it's this book about, one of the things they talk about is how, what you just described about how yeah. colonists would go to the Indians, but Indians never went to the colonists. Right. And on top of, it didn't have the Benjamin Franklin quote, but it did have an Indian named Kendi Aronk who lived among the Europeans for a while. And he was apparently very well-spoken. And they talked about how the Indian cultures were actually much more democratic than anything in Europe at the time. Yeah. And they, they kind of implied that maybe a lot of the Renaissance and um, enlightenment might've come from Europeans discovering not just texts from Greeks that right. Arabs had held, but from seeing much more democratic uh, cultures in North America. So this guy, Kenny Ronk, there's an extended quote of him saying, why would I ever want to live like this? Talking about, I think, France. Right. And so I started sharing that with people and everyone's surprised. I was surprised. And I, it, it sounds unbelievable. So I started looking it up. And that's when I found, so I found the Benjamin Franklin quote. And there's another quote by another French guy who was living in America, seeing this pattern. And then I come across tribe. 
and you go into much more depth and connect it deeply to the modern world. And the, oh, I have to give this aside. Yeah. In, in reading your work, and I'm not too humble to say this, reading your stuff, I was like, the word, the, the right word isn't intimidated. I'm not sure what it is, but it's like, almost like I don't want to write because I don't, I, I can't write this quality. I don't know if I can do this and I don't want to like, and, but of course that just means I got to get great editors. Yeah. <laughs> and it, I mean, the writing is just, you said it's short so you can read in two hours. Also, it's almost impossible to put down. Oh, thank you. So a little nod there. I mean, everyone should read. Thank you. I, I recommend Stavron. And then it's, thank you. David Brooks had a big um, editorial. There's like lots and lots of people have written because it's affected so many people in so many ways. So I started finding out more and more about how more and more cultures that not only resisted, fought back. And I think it was you that talked about other, like in Texas and other places that um, resisted and fought back and people would not, um, or maybe I read in other places, it, 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 more details about people, Europeans finding themselves among Indians and not wanting to come back. Yeah, I just, you know, bear in mind, every society fights violent invaders. I mean, that's what Ukraine's doing right now, because the alternative is being subjugated and killed. So every, every society will defend itself if it thinks that the, the newcomers are predatory and violent and will abuse them, enslave them, kill them, right? So, well, I think that yeah. I grew up thinking that the European colonists were, you know, they're escaping religious persecution in Europe and they came here and they just wanted, they're settlers. I was just listening to someone talking about how the Indians were all fighting each other all the time and then the Europeans came in and they just fought better. But the Europeans were fighting all the time too. Yeah. And we weren't so, I mean, we think of farmers and missionaries coming in and they're peaceful, but they're always the precursor, I don't know, always, but they're, they're the precursor to the, the well-armed, well-organized military that comes in and tends to yeah. defeat. A culture can, I think, can, you can have a culture in which one culture dominates the other, whereas people within the culture are less happy. Yeah, I mean, look, there's, I have a lot about this in my book, Freedom. So agriculture started about five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe a thousand years ago, um, spread gradually throughout the world. But what it allowed is for amassing food uh, that could supply a standing army. Uh, and it tended to encourage um, a hierarchy with very, very powerful people at the top. Now, the book you mentioned, The Birth of Everything, is that the start of the everything? The dawn of everything. The dawn of everything. Actually, we're, I and the authors are in slight dis disagreement here, but um, for most of the human development since, um, since the start of agriculture, very, very powerful city-states dominated most of the territory of the world, and they were run by very, very powerful people at the top of the pyramid. It's a very efficient system. It's just not very fair. And that unfairness continued right on through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance in Europe. The economic system, the social system in, in Europe was horrifically abusive, right? It was North Korea, basically, right? I mean, the, the royals, the people running these countries, the royal courts were completely beyond the reach of the laws. They could rape, they could steal, they could kill without any consequences whatsoever. And that's of their own people, not to mention another country, right? And that changed with the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Um, but now you're almost at 1800. And 
So that was finally when people agreed, and this is what's so interesting. Okay, there are a bunch of old white men. I get it. But the framers of the Constitution did something that was absolutely revolutionary uh, for modern society, which is they said, we will make ourselves prosecutable. Like, we must answer to the same laws as commoners must answer to. And we are powerful, wealthy people, and we are standing up this government, but we ourselves are also answerable to these laws. And we must pay our taxes, right? And if we do wrong, we can be charged in court. We have no, we have no special rights, special responsibilities maybe, but no special rights. And that, that was an innovation that actually was simply recreating a, the norm in an organic small scale tribal society, uh, in hunter gatherer societies all over the world, in much of the, uh, of the tribal societies of North America. Um, there was virtually no accumulation of wealth that was passed on through generations. Uh, as there's a wonderful author named Marie Sandoz. She wrote a book called These Were the Sioux. And one sentence that I just read last night stands out in my mind. She said, among the Plains Sioux, uh, nothing that could be made less by division could be inherited. Understand what that means? Like if you got nothing a pile of, nothing that could be made less by division could be inherited. So you could inherit a name, you could inherit a pattern of beadwork, you could inherit a song. You can't make those things less by division. You can make a pile of money less by division. You can make a herd of horses less by division. Nothing that you can reduce by dividing it could be inherited. It had to be given away when the person died. It's an extraordinary, totally extraordinary concept, but it's in keeping with the very, very egalitarian nature of many hunter-gatherer societies. Um, and so what people are looking at when they're faced with this sort of choice between an agriculture and power-dominated society versus a nomadic or a hunter-gatherer society, one of the choices they're making is, do I want to live in a society where everyone's equal? Or do I want to live in, in a society where there's a power hierarchy and that powerful people can do what they want with less powerful people? That's one of the choices people are making there. So it's not, I mean, it's not a slam dunk that I think a lot of people think it is, is like we're living the best times and it's only going to get better. That there's, there are people today consciously choosing not to be this way, but there are people, I guess there are people consciously choosing to join, I don't know what the civilization. Well, I think, you know, I think you could have the benefits of this civilization, which are numerous, uh, and recoup some of the losses in community and human connection that we've incurred. So, um, it's unarguably good that we have low maternal mortality, low infant mortality, uh, longevity, education. I mean, there are the rule of law, right? Like I, I'm five foot nine, right? I mean, if someone attack, if someone who's six foot nine attacks me, like the law, the law is there to right that wrong, to protect me, right? Like there, I have recourse. I don't have to go home and get a baseball bat. I can call the police, right? So like, that's a huge, huge advantage. Um, which, by the way, was also a system that was in place in, in tribal societies. But what I would say is that the, in human terms, we're a poor society, right? Materially, we're very rich. Uh, institutionally, in terms of education, intellectual achievement, we understand how the universe works down to the first billionth of a second that from the Big Bang. That's extraordinary. We understand the human body. I almost died last year. I had an abdominal hemorrhage, and I was saved by just absolutely miraculous technology, 
right? And, I mean, 20 years ago, I would have died, right? And so the question is, and we're not going back. There's 7 billion people in the world or whatever it is. Like, we're not going to just go back to a previous level of technology that only supported 3 billion. There's no, it doesn't work that way. Here we are, right? So can we make ourselves more materially sustainable without destroying the planet? And can we make society more human? Which for me means that we all experience vital and continual human connections with people close around us like we experience in a crisis. But can we have that when we're not in a crisis? Yeah, you just crystallized what that's the, you talked about we're human terms poor, but materially wealthy. And a lot of that wealth comes from burning fossil fuels, from extracting things out of the ground, which displaces people from their land, things like that. And actually, I, I do have this one question. I'll say it rhetorically. If we're so wealthy, why do we keep taking land from people who aren't? It implies that there's some, maybe it's the human want that's missing. Right. That. Well, what, yeah. I mean, Western society expanded very, very fast uh, several hundred years ago. The lending of money in the lowlands of Northern Europe allowed for exploration, which allowed for colonization and innovation, and that paid for scientific innovation that then helped those, that society expand. And it's interesting that human rights law is associated with capitalism. And I got this from um, Yuval Harari's wonderful book, Sapiens, right? So once you have lending, you need laws to protect the money that's lent so that it's returned. And then once you have that, you have to protect the lives of the lenders, because if you could just kill your creditor, then that doesn't work either. So human rights law is associated with the birth of capitalism in Northern Europe. It's sort of very, very interesting, right? I'm a liberal. I grew up thinking capitalism was evil, and it often is, but it's also very associated with very, very good things. So that happened in Europe very suddenly, and... To fuel the industrial revolution and the technological and the scientific revolution, we needed, the West needed a huge amount of resources, which it went out and got. Now those borders are quite stabilized, right? The former colonial societies in Africa, in South America, in Asia have, have based, almost all of them have thrown off European domination. They are, they are their own societies. America itself right now is not conquering other lands, right? I mean, here we are. We have our borders. Uh, and so for me, the a more vital question is, can we remain materially well off and healthy without destroying the planet to sustain our, our level of affluence? Can I refine that a bit? To me, some of the wealth, some of the material abundance we like, some of it is making us obese and get heart disease and uh, yeah. coveting and things like that. So some of it we like, and likewise, some of the, and we've lost some of the material, the dependency and, and the, the, what you talked about that brings, that causes the oxytocin and, and the good feelings. And can we keep the material stuff that we like, drop the material stuff we don't like? Because I, you know, the McMansion's probably, probably not helping us be happier or healthier. Uh, the SUVs, probably not. And can we raise up what we've lost from before? Does raising up what we lost of the, of the health, of the mental health, does that require pollution? If not, let's do it. And I feel like that's a lot of what you work on. Yeah. Like your mode is not just to complain or talk about situations, but you see 
what's helped some some of these men, for example, coming back after war? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, mental health. I think is in large part a function of feeling like you're living a meaningful life, contributing to the group around you. And so, if we can reform society so that we live in meaningful groups, that will help. And uh, I grew up in a suburb. I didn't. We didn't even know our neighbors. It was not. There was no meaningful group that we lived in, and uh, that we depended on in a daily, in any sort of daily basis. That's what humans are wired for, and we have been deprived of that in modern society. I, you know. Also, we're not a totalitarian state, so we can't just sort of decide. Okay, no more SUVs. You have to make it a, um, you have to make it a, a desirable goal, right? So there was, you know, there was a sort of health consciousness that started in the 70s and 80s, where people thought started to think that smoking was bad, right? And so fewer people smoke now because there's a healthy ideal that has reduced the level of smoking. Uh, that being, you know, there's a, there's a, an aesthetic in the society of fitness. There's a lot of obese people too, but there's also an aesthetic of fitness. You can't impose this stuff. You have to make it look appealing. So what, you know, what I would say is that, I mean, I know people who literally choose their foods in the supermarket according to like which foods don't use too much excess packaging. They're like, I don't enjoy you know, the bacon or whatever that's packaged in such a way where I'm throwing out like this huge container, like I'm not going to buy that food. So what you need to do is encourage an aesthetic where minimal packaging is is seen as desirable, where small cars are seen as desirable. But of course, the capitalist system, here's where it's evil, wants to promote continual consumption, even though that damages the earth, because Profits come from that. So capitalism is incentivized to get you to buy the most and throw it out the fastest, right? So how do you combat that? I don't know, but you can't just impose it. You have to make it. You need a social program that makes that look attractive. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. My work on sustainability began with my challenging myself to go for a week without buying packaged food. That's great. And living in New York, you know, People train decades to become chefs. Why would I not go? To, and you know, I, I barely go to restaurants yeah. now. As a result of the food has become, I thought it was going to take me like, I thought you know it's faster to get takeout. It's the food's going to taste better, and everything that I thought I expected when I actually lived it was the opposite. Right. That it was it's faster when I'm in a hurry. It's slower when I have friends over and we want to linger as compared to going to a restaurant where the waiter's trying to push us out. It's more accessible to people. Like if you want to fill in a food desert, if you want to expand food deserts, keep going to McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. If you want, because that's just funding them to extract wealth from those neighborhoods. That's right. And if you want to help them, shop at a farmer's market if you can yeah. to help them. And then that led to lots of other changes. And what I found is that is I'm trying to help create that ethos, that aesthetic, as you put it, to see that it's advantageous. And as long as people feel like, well, we don't want to return to the stone age or serfdom, feudalism, then that's never going to enter the picture, their mindset. That something deeper is always there. And that's why the quote from Benjamin Franklin and your whole, for the beginning of Freedom of, um, right. of Tribe was so important. And then also when you talk about, so Brandon, you talked about, so he's one of the guys that was in Restrepo 
he figures in the movie, and then he also shows up in the the last um, patrol. Yeah. You talk about him when he was in Restrepo as he would always go out and go the extra mile. He would do the things that made the team help the team work that, you know, it's the end of a long day and no one wants to light the fire and he does it. And then he comes back and he becomes an alcoholic and struggles. But then when I think back on the, when you guys were hiking again together, that came out again. I read that when there was something purposeful and meaningful, when he felt need, he rose to the occasion. And when he felt isolated, and unneeded, then he languished. Yeah, and that's true for everybody. You know, that's true for everybody. I mean, he, you know, he came from a, he had a lot of trauma in his childhood. You know, he was an alcoholic starting when, as a teenager. Um, combat was a respite from his troubles, frankly. It also gave him some issues, but it would also was a sort of respite from uh, the very, very painful trauma and struggles of his sort of ordinary life. And at the last patrol was also, you know, we were walking, we were carrying 70, 80 pounds, walking up to 20 miles a day, dodging the police, living rough. We didn't even have a tent. You know, we had a tarp. We were getting our water out of creeks. I mean, it was not an easy life, right? And uh, all of it was illegal. So the whole thing, the whole thing was hard, but it was also a, for all of us a kind of vacation from the issues of our of our daily lives and you know both brendan and i were in the middle of getting divorced uh we were, we were each getting divorced our marriages were ending and you know we never talked about it on the trip I and mean, we walked 400 miles and we never mentioned it and neither the other two guys brought it up because this trip was a respite from those struggles and uh so you know the more adversity you face the more collectively people act the more they have to ignore their own individual preferences and interests in order to benefit the group because the group, their survival comes from the group. So you, like, it's this feedback loop of pro-social behavior. And as things get better, your survival doesn't come from the group. So you can act more selfishly, but that also makes you vulnerable to your own particular psychological troubles. And then when the enemy attacks again, there's no time, there's no room to think about your troubles because the group needs you. And if you don't give, if everyone doesn't contribute to the group, you're all going to die, right? So in metaphorically or, or not, but that's the, that's the group dynamic. And so when there's, then when there's a moderate level of urgency and hardship and danger that requires a lot of group participation, that's when people are most buffered from the things that would otherwise keep them awake at night. They're sort of inner demons, as it were. Was the last patrol, the idea to go on that partly, I mean, you were in a war situation in Restrepo and you saw people bonding. You came home, people weren't bonding. Was it an experiment? Was that like a, you have a, I'm kind of looking at it from a scientific method, like a thesis that if we challenge ourselves where we must depend on each other, it'll get good again. And then you did that with last, uh, last patrol. Yeah, it was partly that. Partly I wanted to see the country, you know. It was a, it seemed like an interesting way. Railroad line goes through the middle of everything, so it doesn't go around ghettos. It goes right through them. It doesn't go around farms and suburbs and everything else. It goes right through everything. So it was a way to see the country from the inside out and get to know the American people. And But it was also an experiment in uh, – it was an experiment in sort of minor law-breaking and being marginal. Uh, and – relying on two or three other guys 
on a daily basis, which was something that I had very, very good associations with, like very warm associations with that kind of interreliance. Like I really missed it. I should put a comic interlude in here because I don't usually look at credits of movies, but I saw that Daisy had a camera work credit. Yeah, we t- Daisy was my wonderful dog who's since passed away, but uh, we put a GoPro on her back. And uh, so we were, you know, sometimes the situations were a little tricky where, you know, we were sometimes talking to people that, you know, it was a little delicate situation. There's a lot of whatever. There's a lot of, a lot of different kinds of people along railroad lines. But Daisy's camera was always rolling. So, and once we were actually talking to a cop who was trying to decide whether to arrest us, an Amtrak cop, because he busted us walking along the rail lines. And, you know, we, of course, we put the camera down because, you know, but Daisy kept shooting. So this whole scene with the cop, <laughs> you get it from Daisy's perspective. It's pretty hilarious. That was really early. Did you, was that your discovery, how illegal walking there was? Or did you know that before you started? Oh, we knew it. No, it's posted no trespassing the whole way. You know, it's, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, we knew it was illegal. All right. All right. So, um, that was the thing about Daisy. I, I, was, I was like, I thought, I, actually, I was wondering, was that like a conscious decision? Should we put a credit for Daisy or was it like obvious? No, it was just like she shot footage. Like she gets, she, yeah, she's, <laughs> she gets credit. It also was a way of explaining some of the shots that you saw because we can't say that in the film. Oh, this Daisy's shooting this. Like we, it was a way of sort of explaining a couple of shots that otherwise might have been kind of puzzling. I mean, among other things, like we were, we were, we were fording a river and, you know, you, you see Daisy jump into the river and then you see this pr- wonderful perspective of like two years and a dog's, the, the camera was on her shoulder blades, like two years in the top of a dog's head and then water. And like, and you know, so you got the perspective of what it feels like to be a dog swimming across a river. Like, so anyway, it was just a cute way of sort of signaling what we'd done. Yeah, actually following a bit about the nature of, so you talked at the end about, um, the insignificance we feel. This is constant when I talk to people about nature. There's constantly a, a division. Um, it makes you feel humble and insignificant, and that makes you feel more alive. Right. It seems like that's juxtaposed, but it, it keeps happening. Yeah. Well, look, we're animals. We're social primates. We're part of nature. When we die, we return to nature. You know, like that, that's that's our reality, and um, and we're we're relatively puny, and the physical world is staggering and huge and beautiful and intimidating and and forget about the universe i mean that's just our planet the universe is crushing when you really think about when you look up at the stars and think about what you're looking at um but also what i noticed is that the industrial machinery of america is also makes you feel puny like we were walking three miles an hour through a country that was mostly going 70 miles an hour on highways or on railroads and you know we were at we were tiny which allowed us Relatively speaking, we were tiny compared to the society, the mechanized society around us. And that actually allowed us to pass unobserved, uh, almost completely unobserved through society. We're not unobserved, but unnoticed. Going back to this thesis that I, I felt like part of it was we live isolated and a lot of people, you said earlier, capitulate. And so our, our mental health is in many ways deteriorating or at least below what it could be and war gets us out of that earthquakes get us get us out of that uh being bombed by the nazis get us out of that and i think part of your challenge was how can we get out of this without war like okay war brings that but that's is that worth the price is that what we really want and well no yeah i mean no one's suggesting we go to war in order to fix our right our problem 
our lack of community and solid social solidarity, right? I mean, there was a lot of community and social solidarity after 9-11, but no one's suggesting, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not worth the trade. It's just a byproduct that's interesting to note that illuminates the fact that for most of human history, that kind of communitarianism was the norm. And now we only notice it when we, when a catastrophe happens and we need each other. So, you know, that point is just to diagnose our problem. So the question is, how do we create communitarianism in a, in a free capitalist democratic society? Uh, how do we create communitarianism without enforcing it? How do we create it organically as a desirable goal? The social media and the tech giants of Silicon Valley have done enormous harm to our society in terms of social connection, right? The, uh, and the statistics are, are absolutely breathtakingly bad about suicide and depression and anxiety, particularly in young people, particularly in teenage girls, actually. And you can see the numbers climb as soon as the smartphone is invented and a majority of young people have smartphones and are on social media 24 seven. You can see this, the, the, the suicide rate, the depression rate, anxiety rate skyrocket. And these companies have made enormous amounts of money off of this and have done enormous harm. And I would say what I would love to propose is a kind of moonshot for these companies. Like, okay, it's on you guys to figure out how to return the, the, uh, in-person human connection that has characterized the human experience for 200,000, thousand years. It's on you guys to figure out how to return that to daily life in America. Uh, how do you redesign cities so that people interact more? Uh, how do you limit or moderate social media usage so that teenagers actually have a chance to have a healthy human existence? Like, how do you, what can we all do to reform society so that we can have all the amazing benefits of this affluent modern society and mitigate the downsides, which is this crippling alienation? Like, you guys, Google, Apple, you know who you are. Like, how do, how can we do this? And I, you know, I think there is a way to redesign buildings, redesign cities. You know, I think starting in, you know, kindergarten, one of the things children should be taught is the value of human connection and group collaboration. Like, it's not even taught as a social good, right? You need to make it, you need to make people aware of what they've lost so that they will resist, they will resist losing it. Because with it, they lose their humanity. And you can see that in the mental health statistics. It's appalling what our society has done to itself. Here's something that if I didn't start trying to live sustainably and experience the joys of things like the, the unexpected and completely contrary to my expectations of avoiding packaged food, of avoiding flying, I haven't flown since 2016, of um, I unplugged my fridge. The first time I did it, I made it three months. Now I'm in my ninth or 10th month with my fridge unplugged and I'm off the grid right now in Manhattan. Wow. And each, yeah, in my fourth week, it's on today's June 17th. So June 22nd will be one month with my, I, I went to my circuit breaker and just disconnected it. And I'm, I'm going up to the roof almost every day with my portable power battery and, and solar panel. And now People say, Josh, you sound so extreme, but the longer that I do it, the more I find the San Bushman and the Hadza and the Tumani and, and you know, the Native Americans you talked about. 
I see that they become more and more role models. Yeah. Not just for the physical living, but also the mental state, the, the, everything I do when I use less oil or do something to pollute less, always it brings me community, usually family, often family, often neighbors, people nearby. It often brings things like ritual, athleticism, exercise, singing and dancing and um, culture. That's what happens when I'm not, people are like, but you're not going to get to go to Machu Picchu. But I'm finding much more than that. And when, so there's a giant struggle right under our noses that I feel like I'm one of the few people who gets that it's actually a joyful struggle. Right. It's, and so when you were talking about Brendan and you were saying how thorough he was and how, when challenged, when needed, I thought, oh man, I got to talk to this guy because he could, I think there's something, I mean, this is a huge thing that could, at the early stages, there's, I perceive a need to do what you just said of making it desirable, making it that changing culture so that sustainability looks not like deprivation and sacrifice, which in my experience, I thought it would be. And actually it turns out to be community and connection and joy and fun and freedom. It's right there for all of us. I absolutely adore what you're doing. It's amazing. And, um, you know, what I would say is that capitalism, uh, and I don't say that word with, with venom, right? Capitalism has brought enormous good to billions of people, right? But what I would say is that capitalism has sold us the lie that ease and convenience are good things. And actually, it turns out they're not very good things. They actually don't increase your sense of meaning in life. They certainly don't help your physical health. They, they do not help, help your mental health. It's a, um, it's a con. And it's a con that's made a lot of people very wealthy. And some of that wealth has done good things. You know, we, I mean, we have to understand that. But really, when people say, oh, it's more convenient or it's easier, they're assuming that you think that that will be good. It's actually not. Like those, those things are actually not very good for you and they do not make people particularly happy as our entire society is evidence of, right? So, so when, you know, like that, do not you, I mean, I just say to your listeners, do not use those two words as a reason to do something. If anything, I would use them as a reason to be wary of something. You remind me of a podcast that I listened to at the very beginning of the pandemic, like the first month of it. I think it was Sam Harris and he had some guests on there. The, I forget if it's similar to the guests that we're notoriously poor at predicting what will make us feel good. Like we think if we go like, like at the time people are like saying, make sure you take care of yourself. And if you go to get a massage, you think, Oh, that'll make me feel really good. But usually after you get the massage, you're like, okay, that felt good, but whatever. And then if you think about going to volunteer at some soup kitchen, generally you think, Oh, I don't know if I want to do this. It's really a mess. And then when you're leaving, you're like, man, I got to do that more. You know, the, Christopher Hitchens is wonderful on this about donating blood. I know now donate blood every two months, which is the maximum that you can donate because I think I mentioned I almost died two years ago, two years ago yesterday, actually, of an, ab unexpected, an abdominal hemorrhage. I had an aneurysm, an undiagnosed aneurysm in my pancreatic artery, which is a tiny little artery that no one ever thinks about. And I had a, a structural abnormality in my abdomen. It was not a result of any health issue. 
undiagnosed, asymptomatic, and one day it ruptured and I bled out into my own abdomen. I lost half my blood over the course of an hour. And by the time they got me to the hospital, I was uh, minutes from being dead. And uh, I, um, my blood pressure was 60 over 40. And they barely saved me, right? They barely, and I, luckily I'm athletic. I have a strong heart. Like I'm a healthy guy. I, I'm a tough guy, you know, whatever. I managed to survive, right? It took them another eight hours to figure out where the leak was and to plug it. And I still wasn't out of the woods, but I survived something that kills most people. And so now, and I needed 10 units of blood. 10 people saved my life and gave my daughters, allowed my daughters to have a father. And so now, you know, I owe the universe 10 units. Plus, I'm just going to keep doing it. And I got to say, like, one of the nicest feeling things is to go, and I run, you know, I run a lot. So I run to the blood center, which is a few miles away. And I get there all sweaty, and they stick a needle in my arm and take a unit of blood. And I usually take the subway box back because you're not feeling so good after you've lost, after you're down a pint. It is one of the nicest things that I can do for myself. Like, I feel great after I do that because, I mean, we are bad at predicting what's going to make us feel good. Actually, scientists, behavioral scientists know exactly what makes people feel good. Over and over and over again, in every society, what makes people feel good is contributing to the common good. It really works. And there's a, a very good evolutionary reasons for that. It's not an argument for communism. I'm not talking about communism or anything. I'm talking about like when you as an individual do something voluntarily that benefits the common good, it makes people feel great. And when there's no way to do that, when there's no way to contribute to the common good, people feel like they're not needed, they're not necessary, that they're useless, and then they get depressed. And then boom, your town's hit by a hurricane or a tornado or rebels you know, rebels attack the whatever, and all of a sudden you're needed and people start to feel good again. And so there are three ways to contribute to the common good that any person can do, right? You don't have to be a, you know, 22-year-old kid and join the Marines. You can do this at any age. It doesn't matter where you are, who you are. Vote. You must vote. The nation needs you to vote, okay? Voting feels good and it's necessary and there's no, um, there's no legitimate uh, rationale for not voting in a democracy. Um, participate in jury duty. Do not decline jury duty, right? Jury duty is what allows us to live without tyranny. Jury duty means that no one person, no mayor, no police chief, no sheriff, no president can decide the fate of another person. A jury of peers, 12 people who have nothing invested in this, that's the only thing that can decide the fate of another person. And that is a free society and nothing else is. So if you enjoy living in a free society, serve jury duty. And then finally, donate blood. Because one day you're going to need it. And when you donate blood, you are actively participating in the fact that you are a biological animal. And you share this amazing thing with every other human, which is we all run on blood. And my blood can keep your, you alive and your blood can keep me alive. And it doesn't matter... If I'm black and you're white, or I'm, or you're rich and I'm poor, or I'm an atheist, you're, it doesn't matter. None of this thing, blood doesn't care, right? And it unites all of us. It's a biological refutation of every racist thought, every stupid, like, social Darwinist idea, like, every ghastly, bipartisan, political, like, venom. Like, it's, it, it's a rejection of all of those awful things. And you can do it. It takes an hour. You can do it. Like... And it feels great. So 
those are my three there. I've said it like those are my three things that we could all do. So I, I vote. I love jury duty. I don't love that. I went once on jury duty and it was a 30 day case. I was an alternate and they never needed me. Yeah. And people like, Oh, did you feel like it was a waste of time? I was like, it really messed up my life for that month and right. for well after, but no, I felt like that was my part in this particular one. And people vote crazy. I mean, I should say people vote very differently than I expect and it makes total sense to them. And they're my neighbors. And that's a wonderful experience. Yeah. Then yep. blood. So I gave blood in college and the world started, they, they had me sit, you know, they took it and then I'm sitting over there and they're like, I, the world started spinning. And I was like, I'm just going to lay my head down for a bit. And like, they grasped me and they like pulled me over behind the curtain. They're like, don't come back. <laughs> wow. And because I, I started to faint, I guess. And yeah. uh, should I go back then? I, I mean, now I think I should go back and like risk it. I'm not. Yeah, give it a try. Hydrate before you go. Drink a lot of water before you go. Now I'm thinking that was one of the pebbles in my shoe because I felt like, of course, I should get blood, and I've never had. I had to. I had an excuse, but I knew that I yeah, give it a try. Like I wasn't going to die. Yeah, no, no, yeah, give it, a, give it a try. I got to start winding up pretty soon. Okay, uh, if that's okay. But um, yeah, I was going to say that we're running out of time. Yeah, you know, people ask me why I pick up litter every day, and it's deeply rewarding. I might be a fourth thing there, and if you're game for it, I don't know. I, you're in New York, I think. Yeah. I invite you if you're up for it, come sometime with me to Washington Square Park. And I've been meeting people this is like during the pandemic. This is like where I met people, CEOs, politicians, and so forth. And walking around, picking up litter, seeing what's actually there, because yeah. it's not pretty, but yeah. it's deeply rewarding. Yeah. Listen, be in touch. And uh, I'm leaving the city in a few days, but I'm back in the fall. I'm tied to an institutional schedule because my children are in school. So um, but I'm back in the fall. I would love to do that. That would be really fun. Okay. Um, I, to wrap up this this conversation, anything you want to say directly to listeners or anything I didn't think to ask that's really worth bringing up? You know, I, th I think that our, the human society is unbelievably extraordinary accomplishment, right? I mean, our intellectual achievements, the, the increasing momentum of social justice in many societies, the rule of law, music, science, it's extraordinary what we've done, right? But it has come at some costs, both human costs and environmental costs. And I think we're right at an inflection point where we're going to figure out whether we can retain the good that we've achieved and mitigate the bad, or will the bad overrun us? And we're an amazing species. We have figured almost everything out. I think we can figure this out but is going to require every person, every person deciding that they are part of the solution in small ways. And there's no way to, I think, for our species to survive if significant parts of the population decide this isn't my problem. It's all of our problem, uh, both the social problems, the economic problems, and the environmental problems. It's all, all of our problems, however rich or poor you are. And, and both the very rich and very poor can be very apathetic. Uh, as can the middle class, uh, about a collective responsibility. And uh, it, it really, really has to change, or we're going to die, or the species will not survive. There's no guarantees here that the, the human species must survive, right? There's no guarantees at all, but it will if we want it to. And this is, I really feel like this is sort of the beginning of the moment in history where that will get decided. So what values will you instill in your children so that, the outcome is more likely to be positive. 
that's for me the question every parent has to ponder. Now, normally I would say thank you very much at that point, but I can't help but ask if I can sneak in one more. Are you? Is this? Is there a next work that you're that's going to come out that this is a part of what you were just talking, what you're just saying? Not directly. I'm, I'm writing about what happened to me medically. Um, very. I'm an atheist, and I'm I'm sort of an anti-mystic. Like I'm not even non-mystical. I'm actually kind of against all that stuff. And as I was dying, my dead father appeared above me and welcomed me. And I have no explanation for it. And I was still conscious. I wasn't in some dreamland. I mean, I was, I was still talking to the doctor and he was, there he was above me, welcoming me. And I have no explanation. And it's a very common experience. And I'm trying to understand it. And I'm trying to understand it in my next book, which I think will be called Pulse. Well, what a teaser and cliffhanger at the edge of my seat. Sebastian Younger, thank you very much. Thank you for talking to me. I really enjoyed it. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. 